Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links on damninteresting.com and break them down and tell you what you missed and hopefully get you to read some more damn interesting things. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Smithsonian Magazine, a crocodile that had a tire stuck around its neck has finally been freed after six years. Oh. Whoa. I know, right? So a little bit of happy news to get us going. It's in Indonesia, and it was a local bird catcher who managed to trap this very large reptile and sawed off the trash. Wow, that's pretty brave. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> not only brave, but kind of remarkable because there have been various international rescue efforts over the past six years, specifically for this large Indonesian crocodile, which hmm. uh, has been named Buya Kalungban, which means crocodile with a tire necklace. <laughs> <laughs> it was first spotted in 2016, and conservation officials have been trying to free it ever since. They even offered a reward in 2020 for anyone who could rescue it. And that year, American outdoor adventurer and TV presenter Forrest Gallant tried to catch the croc for a documentary called Impossible Croc Rescue, uh, but he was unsuccessful. Uh, <laughs> Australian crocodile wrangler Matthew Wright also tried and failed. He told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the reptile, quote, definitely is one of the most difficult crocodiles I've had to catch in my career. But then in January, a self-taught reptile wrangler named Teeley decided to try his luck, quote, I have experiences and skills in catching animals, not only birds, but farm animals that are released from the cage. Sure enough, Teeley set up a trap using rope tied to a log, and he tracked the crocodile for three weeks. And um, <laughs> the Australian guy, or maybe the American broadcaster who watched it over FaceTime, said, the reptile responded like any crocodile, which is, quote, acting like they're practically dead and lethargic, and then all of a sudden... Cool. snapping to life and seeming very unprovoked or uninterested in the fact that he's just had this crazy alien-like experience and headed back out into the river. Man, no gratitude, though. Like, you know, you, you love it when, like, you free an animal, like, they pause at the waterline and stare back at you and you know, they, like, mm. But it was a human-made piece of trash That's that got true. around his neck, you know, and eventually that tire would have begun to asphyxiate the animal and prevent mm -hmm. it from eating, and as Teeley ends the interview View, I didn't learn this anywhere. I just can't stand to see animals hurt. Aww. So if you learn one thing this week, take it from a <laughs> conservationist who didn't even have a last name cited in the Smithsonian Magazine article Man. that, wow. you know, follow your heart. And if it goes towards a crocodile, make sure you've got the appropriate skills. That's right. Be like Teeley, but only if you're qualified. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from lithub.com, and it's titled, What Exactly Do Words Taste Like? Mm. <laughs> so this is written from the perspective of Guy Leshner, who is a professor of neurology, and he's telling us the story of a man named James. So now in his 60s, synesthesia has been part of James' life for as long as he can remember. 
And James reports, My very first memories of sound having associated tastes and textures were during daily trips to and from preschool on the London Underground. I was aged around four at the time, and my mother was helping me with my reading and writing, so I'd spend the journey reading out and writing down the names of the stations and their accompanying tastes as we stopped or passed (laughs) through them. After that, I moved on to the overhead carriage maps. I still have some of those battered notebooks from all the years ago, and the name, food, and flavor are exactly the same as they are today. I can also specifically remember we used to have to recite the Lord's Prayer every morning in my school, and that used to bring on extremely strong bacon textural tastes. Hmm. Yeah, and James recalls mentioning all of this to his mother, but she would dismiss it. (laughs) And it didn't occur to him that not everyone had this experience of the world. When he began to mention it to his school friends, he was generally greeted with blank responses, disbelief, or mild acceptance, but his (laughs) synesthesia never really caused him a problem until he was about 15. He writes, We used to have to sit yearly exams, which we would have in big echoey halls, and I'd be totally and utterly distracted by the sounds. Even reading the questions was very distracting. So I asked my mom to take me to the doctor. Dr. Leshner, the author, can guess what a GP's response in the 1950s or 60s would have been, and James confirms it as he laughs. He said that from an early age, I'd always had a wild imagination, and this was just a phase that I would grow out of. That was his response. So it was a harsh assessment by the GP, but understandable. Even now, some of the things James talks about are utterly incomprehensible, almost outlandish. Discussing his tube journeys as a child, he says... My favorite tube station was Tottenham Court Road because there's so many lovely words in there. Tottenham (laughs) produced the taste and texture of a sausage. Court was like an egg, a fried egg, but not a runny fried egg, a lovely crispy fried egg. And road was toast. So there you've got a pre-made breakfast. breakfast. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's amazing. But further along, the central line was one of the worst ones. That used to taste like an aerosol can. That was Bond Street. And when he looks back, he knows that all of his old friends had names that tasted nice. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, one of his friends was married to a woman whose name tasted to James of lumpy vomit. He grimaced (laughs) as he spoke her name. And needless to say, James did not understand his friend's choice of partner. (laughs) So for some synesthetes, the rules governing their associations are so complex that they cannot voice them or even understand them. Such rules have taken specialists in psycholinguistics years to unravel. Even more convincing, however, are the studies of the brains of synesthetes. Mm -hmm. Using the almost ubiquitous tool of the neuroscientist Functional Magneting Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, researchers have clearly demonstrated differences between synesthetes and non-synesthetes. For example, those who report perceiving colors from words or letters, the color-selective regions of the brain light up. Other studies have shown areas of hyperconnectivity within the brains of synesthetes. These are clear expansions of connecting tracks between different parts of the cerebral cortex that presumably mediate this crosstalk between the senses. And a third line of evidence comes from genetic studies. These have identified areas of the human genome linked to synesthesia, obviously implying a genetic basis to the phenomenon. This supports the observation that synesthesia tends to run in families. And here, once again, Francis Galton pops up, having published a paper in Nature in 1880 entitled Visualized Numerals. While Galton does not use the term synesthesia, this is clearly what is being referred to. While hearing-induced vision, seeing colors when hearing music, for example, is the most common type of synesthesia, 
The condition comes in many different guises, visions generated by touch, tastes generated by words, or any other possible permutation of sensory crossover. It might, however, be a misrepresentation to consider synesthesia as purely a merging of the senses. For some synesthetes, that is indeed the case, but for others, it is not quite so straightforward. The triggers for these cross-modality experiences may not be raw sensory experiences, but higher-order cognitive constructs, with something more abstract generating these synesthetic experiences. So, for instance, consider James and his word-taste synesthesia. For at least some of his pairings, it seems that the relationship is defined by the meaning or root of the words themselves. For him, there is a linguistic or semantic element to all of this, not purely auditory. Hmm. For others, certain words beginning with the same letter may elicit the same color, despite the words being pronounced differently, e.g. popcorn, psychiatry, phone. Hmm. For some, it may be the sound of the letter, for others the geometry of the letters, for others still, it may be the case that a letter, no matter how it is written, in whatever font, capitalized, or lowercase, may precipitate the same color, once again implying that the origins of their synesthesia are more complex than the raw sensory experience. Hmm. So it's actually kind of interesting because I just saw some person on Twitter was tweeting about how he has a word or a name synesthesia. So mm. he was ha having people like send their name and he would tell them what it tastes like. Like, oh, that's spaghetti. Oh, Tom is bacon. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> um, Interesting. But he was also pointing out that like it doesn't work for names that he's not familiar with. So like people mm. are giving him, you know, names from other languages or less common names. And he was like, sorry, I don't have an association to that word. These right. all come from, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah, that stuff's really yeah. fascinating. I interviewed a woman once who had really severe synesthesia in a way that I've, I've never heard anyone else describe. She had, like, directional synesthesia. Whoa. So for her, it was like you could tell her your name and she'd be like, oh, you're in this direction. And, like, it would throw her mm. off if you were physically standing in a different place than where she felt like you were supposed to be. Whoa. And it was very cool. And she was like, all words kind of belong in this sort of cardinal quadrant around me. But also, she was awful with directions because like <laughs> she could not like the word left didn't necessarily mean to the left for her depending on how she was like it was just really hard oh, i would be jealous but it does seem really inconvenient to have your dating history informed by avoiding chunky vomit absolutely <laughs> well you just give them a nickname though you should always call them sweetie and they're like how come you never say my name and you're like mm, you don't want that it's better than <laughs> chunky bombs yeah <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next article from The Atlantic is called North America's Largest Rodent is on the Move. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I opened it thinking it was about capybaras. Alas, the capybara is not native to North America. So in this case, ah. we are actually talking about the humble beaver. Oh. And as the title says, they are on the move northward, most especially into Alaska. So yeah. the article is focusing on the town of Kotzebue which is in the upper northwest part of the state. Locals who grew up there say that beaver used to be unheard of, but now they're everywhere. One group of scientists used satellite images to show that between 2002 and 2019, the number of beaver dams in the area jumped from 2 to 98. Ooh. In the northwest region as a whole, they estimate there are now at least 12,000 beaver ponds. And this is important because beavers are known as ecosystem engineers, meaning mm -hmm. they're a species that dramatically changes any ecosystem they enter. Their river dams are problematic for things that actually, you know, live in rivers. 
and they open up huge opportunities for creatures that live in still water. They're just like us. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> they also routinely carry a parasite, unfortunately called Giardia, which they've evolved to coexist with, but other animals, including humans, have not. So Cyrus Harris, who runs a sled dog team in the area, says that he used to be able to drink straight from the river during fishing and hunting trips, but that's no longer safe to do. They also note that for now, the community water treatment plant is able to handle the problem for the actual water they pipe into people's homes, but it's not inconceivable that the system will be overwhelmed in the future. Like, beavers could run humans out. (sighs) Yeah. And of course, the major reason that the beavers are moving north is climate change, which is Mm -hmm. to say, because they can. They want shrubs and greenery to eat, and as those things start to grow further and further north, the beavers are going to follow the food. But... There is a second issue, which is that beaver trapping used to be a huge industry, but demand for beaver pelts has understandably tapered off, which is, it's fair. You know, I will freely admit that I have not been doing my part in buying up baby crocket hats. (laughs) (laughs) Was that beaver or was that raccoon? Oh, you're right. That was raccoon. I don't know. Who wears a beaver hat? Other people wear beaver hats, right? (laughs) I guess it's been that out of fashion. I have no point of reference for beaver fashion. I don't even want to Google that, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So Ralph Ramoth Jr., an Inupiaq subsistence hunter who also works for the local airport, notes that the Inupiaq elders were saying years ago that the beaver population needed to be culled, but nobody did because there wasn't money to be made in it anymore. (laughs) He says some people say, well, don't kill the beavers, just tear down their dams. But those people don't understand the reality of what a beaver dam is. He says they can be as tall as 15 feet. And with enough beavers in the area, you can tear the whole thing down and they'll have it back up the next day. Wow. Whoa. He says, quote, they're busy beavers. obligatory yeah exactly but you know others argue that the beavers aren't necessarily making a better or worse ecosystem just a different one one local man named lance kramer pointed out that they might lose their river fishing but the beaver ponds bring in moose ducks waterfowl and muskrat which are all just as good in a different way but another factor that scientists are considering is whether the beavers are actually accelerating climate change They say stagnant ponds collect heat better than flowing water, and there's some evidence that beaver ponds can melt the surrounding permafrost and release extra carbon and greenhouse gases. So they really are like humans. (laughs) (laughs) Ken Tape, an ecologist studying beaver expansion at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, says the key question to ask wherever you're standing in the Arctic is how long will it be until beavers get there? Because when they get there, it'll never be the same again. And all this, I think, really puts beavers in a new light for me. Yeah, I'm getting zombie vibes, like eco-polluting zombies now. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article is from Grist, the puzzling and complicated combination of microorganisms in the air. Hmm. We'll take this back just a couple of years to January 2020, where a woman eating at a restaurant in Guangzhou had the virus but didn't know it yet. Later, we found out she infected nine of the 82 other people eating at the restaurant that day. Hmm. But months later, we uncovered the reason why the infected diner got some people sick while others walked away unscathed. Specifically, it was an air conditioning unit near the woman that had carried the virus through the air, circulating it in a pattern through Hmm. the restaurant. So some 1,600 miles south of Guangzhou in Singapore, 
Stephen C. Schuster, the director of the Singapore Center for Environmental Life Sciences Engineering at Nanyang Technical University, he watched this research coming out of China with interest, and it fascinated him that airflow, just as much as virology, seemed to be a critical factor in many early studies of how the virus worked. And for years, his own research has focused on something similar—not specifically the way airflow affects coronavirus, but the way ventilation affects the entire planet. And if this is your first time hearing the term air microbiome, you are not alone. <laughs> Most researchers. <laughs> Most researchers don't even know it exists, but there is an entire ecosystem in the air, just like there are terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems that are teeming with life across the planet. Wow! Quote, People make the assumption that there's nothing in the air because we can't see it, but there is another world up there, swirling with bacteria, fungi, and other microorganisms that have been suspended in the air. Schuster's study is the first in the world to examine how climate change may be affecting this invisible ecosystem, and his paper is just cracking open the door to an entirely new chapter of research into the field of air microbiology and its implications for human and planetary health in a warming world. That's a lot. Yeah. But I mean, it basically says to me that in the same way that you know you go digging in the permafrost and you might release something that's <laughs> yeah. been buried there, if you take a plane. That plane could go 36,000 feet in the air and come down bearing some unknown virus that's just been sort of lingering up there and yeah. and set us all. Wow. Yeah. All right. I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, permafrost and things evaporating and like and we just assumed they go into the air, which has always kind of felt like a, a vehicle or carrier of delivery and mm -hmm. not a full ecosystem unto itself. And that's yeah. sort of the big thesis and takeaway here. Four years ago, Schuster set about trying to map the air microbiome, but he ran into trouble really quickly. He set up air samplers on a building in Singapore called the Pinnacle at Duxton, which is the tallest public residential complex in the world. And he found the exact same combination of fungi and bacteria in the air on the ground floor as he found on the fiftieth floor. He then、hmm. sampled air at the bottom of a mountain in Switzerland and turned up the same formula of bioaerosols as there were at the mountain's peak. So he was wondering how could it be that there was absolutely no change to the air microbiome, no matter how up in the sky you went. "Quote: There were so many months and years where I thought, 'Oh my God, I'm going to fail.'" <laughs> <laughs> And the problems that Schuster ran into with his research echoed the crux of the analysis of that COVID-infected diner in Guangzhou. He wasn't accounting for ventilation and airflow. He didn't realize that the air he was measuring at the bottom of the mountain was flowing up along the ridge、mm. to the top of the peak. So the air he sampled at the top was exactly the same as the air he had sampled just minutes before.、Mm. So once he had developed a system for analyzing the air column that accounted for airflow using sensor technology, climate scientists have been using for years. They hit the jackpot. They were able to create a vertical map of the atmospheric microorganisms in the lower atmosphere. God, reality is so complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he ran a ton of tests on the concentrations of atmospheric microorganisms at different heights, and they found that the factor that determines how those microorganisms are distributed and move through the air is temperature. And that's the climate、oh, connection. <laughs> so here's how it works: warmer temperatures change the formula of fungi and bacteria in the atmosphere. If you get more warming, you get more fungi, many of which are pathogens that rise、mm -hmm. up through the Earth's boundary layer, which is the lowest part of the troposphere. So in the tropical regions of the world. 
the air microbiome has a lot more fungal pathogens and even bacteria that are swirling around the air. And yeah, the takeaway is a little alarming as the the planet (laughs) warms, but we don't really know how infectious these particles are yet. So we're hoping this fresh research inspires researchers in other places around the world to use his system for sampling the air microbiome to map the air columns where they live and help Mm. him create a global map of the air microbiome. Yeah, I mean, when tropical diseases start suddenly showing up in places where it isn't warm, but it's because it's risen up and blown over to them, people are going to start paying attention. Not that there's necessarily anything we can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. In related warming news, I guess, let's talk about the sun. (laughs) This article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled, The sun has erupted nonstop all month, and there are more giant flares coming. Oh, goody! So the past few weeks or so have been a very busy time for the sun. Our star has undergone a series of giant eruptions that have sent plasma hurtling through space. Perhaps the most dramatic was a powerful coronal mass ejection and solar flare that erupted from the far side of the sun on February 15th, just before midnight. Based on the size, it's possible that the eruption was in the most powerful category of which our sun is capable, an X-class flare. Hmm. Because the flare and CME were directed away from the Earth, we're unlikely to see any of the effects associated with a geomagnetic storm, which occurs when material from the eruption slams into Earth's atmosphere. These include interruptions to communications, power grid fluctuations, and auroras. But the escalating activity suggests that we may anticipate such storms in the imminent future. And there's a small video here which you can watch, which really does look like one of those 3D images of the sun where it's all glowy, but you just see this massive vent shoot out of it because I guess it's this, you know, thermal imaging. Although it really does just look like a shot of air coming out of like a big orange ball, but that's our sun. Um... (laughs) So astronomer Junwei Zhao told Spaceweather, this is only the second farside active region of this size since September 2017. If this region remains huge as it rotates to the Earth-facing side of the sun, it could give us some exciting flares. (laughs) According to Spaceweather Live, which tracks solar activity, the sun has erupted every day for the month of February, with some days featuring multiple flares. That includes three of the second most powerful flare category, M-class flare, There were also five M-class flares in January. The mild geomagnetic storm that knocked 40 newly launched Starlink satellites from low Earth orbit followed an M-class flare that took place on January 29th. Ejecta from a solar eruption usually takes a few days to reach Earth, depending on how fast the material is traveling. So while that may all sound intimidating, that is pretty normal for our sun as it ramps up its activity towards and during solar maximum, the most dynamic time during its activity cycle. While the sun can seem pretty consistent to us here on Earth on a day-to-day basis, it actually goes through 11-year activity cycles with a clearly defined minimum and maximum. This cycle is based on the sun's magnetic field, which flips around every 11 years with its north and south magnetic poles switching places. Sunspots are temporary regions of strong magnetic fields, while coronal mass ejections that erupt from solar flares are produced by magnetic field lines snapping and reconnecting. The most recent solar minimum took place in December 2019. The solar maximum is due to take place around July 2025. It can Mm. be difficult to predict how active any given cycle is going to be because we don't know what drives them. Recent research suggests that this has to do with an 11.07-year planetary alignment, but scientists in 2020 found evidence that we might be entering the strongest cycle recorded to date. 
It remains to be seen whether the rest of the cycle will continue in the same vein, but a Benonkers solar cycle is definitely something <laughs> we're here for, provided it doesn't deliver another devastating Carrington event. Yeah, I mean, if scientists are using words like Benonkers, I'm out. And, <laughs> and it's not even, we're in 2022 having these big, you know, X-class giant things, and we're not even to the maximum in 2025. That's, yep. I don't know. I probably shouldn't be frightened. It probably should not worry me, but it feels no, like... No, we're breaking records. It's our race to the future. It's Earth it's... number one. Yeah. <laughs> well, a Carrington event is a pretty bad thing. So yeah. <laughs> it basically messes up our magnetic field of like the entire planet. It's a super intense geomagnetic storm. It can cause fires. It can knock out electronics. It can do all kinds of really intense stuff. The last one happened in 1859 and caused sparking and fires in telegraph stations and there were huge auroral displays and all kinds of crazy stuff. So that would be pretty bad for us. And I've got well, my fingers crossed. it's not like crossed. we're a culture dependent on electronics and technology. We'll be yeah. fine. We'll be oh, fine. yeah. Totally. I know how to change a tire. <laughs> Our systems are super well equipped to return to agricultural days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're good. We're 100%. good. Yeah. I always like to joke that when it comes to buying books, I buy mostly ebooks, but for anything I'd need during the apocalypse, I buy a hard mm, copy. How things work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need copies yeah. of that stuff. Anyways, next link. <laughs> next link. All right. Well, this next article is again from LitHub. It's called Scholars Once Feared That the Book Index Would Destroy Reading. Oh, so no. <laughs> Of course, this being LitHub, it is a sort of summary slash excerpt from an upcoming book, which is called Index, comma, A History of Thee. And the author, Dennis Duncan, is a lecturer at University College London, which I'm sure is a lovely institution, but it has the fakest sounding name I've ever heard. Like, your Canadian girlfriend definitely goes to University College. <laughs> but, so Duncan starts out by pointing out that in the old days, he'd say something like, everyone turned to page 128 of Pride and Prejudice. And a bunch of hands would shoot up asking, what page is that in the Penguin edition? Or I've got the Wordsworth edition. Can you tell me what chapter it's in? But these days, he said, the students don't want a page number at all. They just ask, what's the first sentence? And then they run a word search on their digital device. Hmm. And on the hmm. one hand, there are people who are lamenting this change, talking about short attention spans and how kids these days don't know what it's like to just read a book from start to finish. But Duncan says, actually, this word searching function is actually very similar to an ancient type of book index called a concordance. The kind of book index that we usually think of is actually more specifically called a subject index, while the concordance was more like a word index. And what it did was basically take every word in the manuscript alphabetically and list the places where it appeared. The critical difference being that there's no interpretation in a concordance. In a subject index, you might have an entry like John F. Kennedy, and then under that you'd have inauguration, policies, assassination of. But in a concordance, you just have the word assassination and page numbers, and you'd have to go hunt those down and read the passages to figure out the context. And this distinction between the two types of indexes, believe it or not, actually saved a man's life at one point. <gasps> So, what? yeah. So back in 1543, there was a lot of back and forth between the official religion of the crown versus the various heretics in the realm. And King Henry VIII had outlawed the publication or copying of Calvinist tracts, the penalty for which was burning at the stake. So some rumor got around that a guy named John Marbeck was doing this and the authorities raided his house. And they did indeed find a Calvinist tract 
But he argued that it wasn't illegal to own it, only to copy it. And his copy had clearly been made before the new law came into effect. So he was in the clear. But during the raid, they also found a huge project that he'd been working on, which was basically a concordance in progress for the English translation of the Bible. And the way he was making it was he had a copy of a Latin concordance for the Latin Bible. And even though he didn't speak Latin, he was doing this one-to-one process where he'd take a word in the Latin concordance, find it in the Latin Bible, figure out based on its placement what the English word must be, and then put that English word into his new English concordance with all the associated page numbers. Oh my gosh, it's like building some kind of like language agnostic content strategy matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I am so here for this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the authorities found it very suspicious because (laughs) what it looked like he was doing was translating the Bible, which was super illegal because the English version was the version and making new translations was the kind of thing those pesky Calvinists did. But he was able to convince them during a harsh prison interrogation that since a concordance was just an index of words with no interpretation, it wasn't the same as a subject index that might try to say this passage of the Bible is about whatever. He said, I don't even speak Latin. And they said, well, that's obviously a lie. How could a guy who doesn't speak Latin pull this (laughs) off? So he said, look, you can see here I'm only up to the letter L. So give me the M section here in prison and I'll make the next section of the English concordance right here in front of you. And he did. So they did not burn him alive. Good save. (laughs) But in case you're wondering how interpretive a subject index could really be, Duncan does offer a rather hilarious example from a history book called Feudal England by J. Horace Round. And a big part of Round's work was apparently correcting what he saw as scholarly errors by another academic named Edward Freeman. And the book itself is like 600 pages and doesn't really come off as very snarky, according to Duncan. But the index tells a whole different story. Under the index entry for Freeman, professor, the index offers these options. His contemptuous criticism, when himself in error, his, quote, facts, underrates (laughs) feudal influence, overlooks the Worcester relief, confuses individuals, misconstrues his Latin, his dramatic (laughs) tendency, his pedantry, his failure, his special weakness. And <laughs> honestly, that's just a tiny portion of it. The thing goes on and on. Take on the blog. Exactly. Yeah, damn. And Duncan does, of course, note that most professional indexers would consider this a wildly inappropriate level of interpretation, <laughs> especially the bits like putting facts in scare quotes. But, <laughs> but he says it just goes to show that indexes can be powerful and rude. And one presumes there's a lot of other interesting examples in the book. And of course, to tie it all back together, he explains how when the index was first invented, a lot of people started making similar complaints to today where they're like, well, if someone can just go to the back of the book and find the piece that they want to read about, they're not going to read the whole book. They'll never get the whole context. Society is failing. No one will ever be reading in 50 years, all because of the index. You know, partially he's just saying, chill out. Like you can have word searches in your Kindle and it's fine. It's not the end of civilization. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include In Defense of the Gentrification Building, Massive Monster Sea Scorpion Revealed Through Fossil Discovery, and Why We Shouldn't Push a Positive Mindset on Those in Poverty. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. 
In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.